Well, it is a pleasure to be here on this special day, this day we call Selection Sunday. Uh, I'm just kidding. Palm Sunday. (laughs) I was afraid that you were not going to get that, but you did, so that makes me feel good. I want to draw your attention to our passage this morning. It comes out of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. As I minister on the college campus and as I talk to students, there are two mistakes they make when they're reading the Bible. The first mistake they make is they think reading the Bible is an end in itself. Maybe some of you in here this morning think that. When I talk to a student, ask about how their spiritual life is going, what's the Lord doing in their life, uh, undoubtedly they tell me, well, I should be reading my Bible more. Uh, Really? Why, Why should you be reading your Bible more? And uh, undoubtedly they say, well, because I'm supposed to read my Bible. It's as if they're supposed to read the Bible in some kind of vacuum. And maybe you this morning make that mistake. The Bible is not an end in itself. When we read the Bible, it pushes us outward. It's a means to an end. And that end is to love God and to love our neighbor more. That's why we read the Bible. It's not an end in itself. Secondly, when I ask a student about their spiritual life, uh, the mistake they make is they think the Bible is just a set of rules or propositions. They read the Bible as if, well, I need to learn something. And there's some truth to that, but there's, uh, there's a misconception uh, to that. The Bible is not just a book of rules or propositions. The Bible is a story. It's a story of God redeeming his people, of God interceding and bringing his people home safely. And this morning, I want to encourage you, as we read this passage, to think of it that way. That this is a story of which every person in this room plays a part of. You are a significant character in this story. Don't forget that. Your life is significant, and God is going to use you in the story of redemption. What a great honor that is that you have. So let's read our passage this morning, and I will pray for us. Again, this is Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who went sent away, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it 
saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you as your people, as your covenant people. We are your people and you are our God. And we can find rest in you. And we can find rest in you because you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, to come and to redeem us, to purchase us back from death and sin and to establish us on a rock, a place of safety. Father, we long to know more about that gospel truth this morning. We long to be different people not because of some visiting preacher, not because of some simple fellowship we have this morning. We long to be different because we have come face to face with the Lord Jesus. Would you change us this morning? Would we leave this sanctuary as different people because we met the Lord Jesus in his word? Be with us now. Be with the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, would you condescend and teach us all? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm a movie buff, and I love movies. And if you know, the Oscars just happened. And so for me to, be, to validate my existence or to validate uh, my desire to see the Oscars, I had to go see the movies that were nominated for Best Picture. The movie that I hadn't seen, or a couple of them, but there was one I hadn't seen. It was called There Will Be Blood. Uh, some of you have seen that movie. Some of you maybe uh, have not seen that movie. This is the first movie I think I've ever watched, and I came out of it extremely confused. I had no idea how to understand what was going on in this movie. I had some kind of tension inside of me that I had no idea how to explain. And so as I pondered over this movie, as I thought about it a few days later, I came to realize the issue that I had with the movie. And the issue I had with the movie was that it was linear. It began and it ended. There was no climax. There was no uh, really move toward a part of the movie where we long to understand the point of the movie. It just was flat. It started and it ended. There was no redemption in the story. And it left me with this uh, confusion, this tension within my soul to understand what is going on here. And maybe some of you had that uh, experience with this movie. And I resonated with, with Roger Ebert when he described this movie. He said, I don't know if I should like this movie or if I shouldn't like this movie. And I think that's the point of the movie, to leave you in confusion because it doesn't have redemption. And as people participating in the story of redemption, we should always look for that 
in this culture, we should always look for it in stories because that's where it will resonate in our souls. Well, the glorious thing about our story is it's not without redemption. There is a climax. And this week, we start our narrative climb to that climax where next Sunday we will celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, His defeat and power over sin, the climax of the great story. And this morning we come understanding that Messiah. We come longing to understand who is this Messiah that has come? Who is this Messiah that will purchase us from our sin? And it's the Lord Jesus. And He comes as a king, as a prophet, and as a priest. He comes fulfilling all the anointed uh, officials or offices of the Old Testament. He is the great Messiah because He fulfills these three offices and He fulfills them completely. The first office we see Him fulfilling in our passage this morning is of a king. We see that in the first six verses where Luke writes about the Lord Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, the city of God where the temple resides, where God resides with His people. Mount Zion, the city that is talked about throughout the Old Testament, how God will restore this city. And Jesus comes in as His king, riding on a donkey, riding on a colt of a donkey. Now, he is a promised king. Uh, it's kind of funny as you read this story in the Gospel of John is how the, uh, the disciples don't understand what's going on. They should know what's going on because Jesus was promised. And we learn about that in Zechariah chapter 9 where Zechariah prophesies, prophesies saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Five hundred years before Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, his coming as a king was prophesied. And the people of God should know this, and yet they don't know it. Not only was it prophesied broadly that there would be a king, but a specific prophecy, the prophet specifically prophesies uh, this king as coming on a donkey. One is a cult, uh, on a colt of a donkey. Here's what this means. This means that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to his people. God is a God of promise and a God of fulfillment. What he says in the Old Testament does come true in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. He loves his people so much so that he promises them a redeemer. And that person is the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the physical manifestation of God's faithfulness to his people. He's a coming king, a prophesied king. Secondly, he comes as a humble king. We see this in the second few verses of that passage where Jesus enters in on the cult of a donkey. Now, uh, when kings entered into a, city, in a, into a city at this point in time, they came in great pomp and circumstance. They came riding on an animal fit for battle, a stallion, if you will, riding behind a stallion on a chariot. And they're surrounded by the people that represent them. And this procession that takes place of a king comes because he's victorious over his enemies. And the procession is always started by those that follow the king. The king doesn't start his procession. 
He doesn't say, here, I'm coming into the city. You know, start a processional, start a celebration. No, the people that represent this king, that are excited about his victory over their enemies, starts the procession with great energy. They run out and meet their king and celebrate his victory over their enemies. Well, that's not the case for the Lord Jesus. Jesus comes having to start his own processional. He is the one that says, go get me a donkey. And this is where you will find it. He is the one, the king, entering into Jerusalem, and yet he has to start his, his processional. Moreover, his processional is identified with insignificance. He's riding an animal of insignificance, of a donkey, nothing like a great stallion, an animal of warfare. He rides in on a donkey, and he's surrounded by people, with in, people of insignificance, people that are weak and wounded, people that are looking for hope in the world, people that are looking to be restored are following the Lord Jesus. They're insignificant people. They're not people that any of us in here would hang out with. And yet we are those people. The gospel doesn't mean anything to us unless we understand that we are the insignificant people. We are the weak people. And the Lord Jesus is our king. Now what did he do with a king like this? Well, 360 years ago, the divines who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger, the larger and shorter catechisms give us a hint on what to do with a king like this. The first question to the shorter catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now the question is, what does it mean to glorify God? What does that look like? Well, in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, my Bible keeps sliding. In the Old Testament, it means to ascribe weight to something. When the Old Testament people sought to glorify God, they would ascribe weight to him, to ascribe power and majesty to somebody outside themselves. So what does it mean? What does it look like to deal with a king like this? It means to ascribe him glory, to submit to him, to allow him to have power and majesty over your life. To, uh, to worship, to glorify God, means to allow him to enter into your life and throw his weight around, as it were. To allow God to come in and to throw the weight that you ascribe to him around in your life. My dog, Lily, is not allowed to come to our Tuesday night Bible study because she, she has this... Um, unsatiable desire to be around people. And when she's around people, she uh, wiggles really furiously. She's not a dog that just wiggles her tail. Her whole body wiggles back and forth. And when, when people come over on Tuesday, she throws her weight around so much so that she destroys or demolishes anything in the room. Cups on the table you know, plates on the coffee table, because her tail and her body is wiggling so furiously, I have to put her up in her cage on Tuesday night. She throws her weight around and disturbs things in her Bible study. This morning, I'm asking you, and the scriptures are asking you, are you allowing God to throw his weight around in your life, to disturb things in your life, 
to speak into your life as the king of glory. Some of you need God to, uh, to speak into your marriages. Some of you need God to speak into your financial, uh, your financial aspect of your life. To glorify God. What do you do with a king like this? You glorify him and you allow him to throw his weight around in your life. Secondly, Jesus comes as the Messiah, fulfilling the prophet. The Old Testament speaks of God giving his people a great prophet. And we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. It says this, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again of the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to him, They are right in that they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will acquire it of him. A prophet is coming. A prophet is the one that speaks the words of God. That is the uh, physical manifestation of God's presence with his people. And he comes speaking words of warning to listen to uh, the Lord and to follow in what he says. And those that don't listen to him do it to their own peril. Those that don't listen to the great prophet do it to their own destruction. And so Jesus comes as that great prophet in verses 41 through 42 saying, uh, or bringing bad news to Jerusalem, prophesying about their destruction. Jesus is obviously prophesying about Jerusalem's destruction by the, the Romans in 70 A.D. Now why is he prophesying about this? Why is Jesus coming in as the king, as the great prophet, prophesying about Jerusalem's destruction. It's because they're blind. It's because they've sought after other gods. And there's consequences to their sin. Another issue that I deal with on the college campus, and some of you might deal with it, is that people don't want to take responsibility over their sin. We want to live a life uh, pursuing our own desires, wreaking havoc in other people's lives, sinning on a daily basis, and yet we don't want to be responsible for that. We don't want to see that there's consequences for that. And that's seen all over the college campus, living lives of debauchery and idolatry, and yet they graduate and they go home and they find themselves struggling with sadness and depression because they don't know where their life is. They don't know where to go from there because they lived a life of sin and they don't want to take consequences for their sin. They don't want to see the consequences for their sins. What once was a visit of peace is now a visit of destruction from the Lord Jesus because the people did not hear his words. Here's what it means. Jesus has come to indict his people upon their sin. Jesus enters into the great city of Jerusalem indicting his people for their rebellious and idolatrous hearts. But Jesus doesn't come as a cold prophet. 
He comes as a prophet whose heart is broken. We see him weeping in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus' heart is broken over his people's sin. Now, lest you think this is just Jesus riding on a donkey or riding on a colt of a donkey, being quiet with having little tears run down his face, you would be misunderstood. The Greek word there for weeping is kaleo, which means to wail out loud. Jesus is entering into the city with a broken heart over his people. As the great prophet that comes that longs to see his people turn back to him, that longs to hear his people, longs to see his people listen to him because he speaks the truth. And yet they've run from him. They've sought after the desires of their own heart. And Jesus' heart is broken for that. He doesn't come as a cold, hard prophet bringing destruction. He comes as a prophet that is burdened by the sin of his people because he loves them. He loves his people and knows what they need the most is a relationship with him. They need peace. What do you do with a prophet like this? Archibald Rutledge the poet laureate of South Carolina, wrote this story. He met this guy in a coffee shop one morning. And he approached this guy because he seemed like he was downtrodden. And he asked this guy a question and he writes this story. Archibald Rutledge wrote that one day he met a man whose dog had just been killed in a forest fire. Heartbroken, the man explained to Rutledge how it happened. Because he, was work- he, because he worked outdoors, he often took his dog with him. That morning, he left the animal in a clearing and gave him a command to stay and to watch his lunch bucket while he went into the forest. His faithful friend understood, for that's exactly what he did. Then a fire started in the woods, and soon the blaze spread to the spot where the dog had been left. But he didn't move. He stayed right where he was in perfect obedience to his master's word. With tearful eyes, the dog's owner said, I always had to be careful what I told him to do because I knew he would do it. What do you do with a prophet like the Lord Jesus? Is you listen to him. You listen to what he commands of you and you do it. Not because of you think you're going to merit his, his favor. But you do it because you love him. And you see that his life gives you peace. The peace that you all long for in this world only comes to the Lord Jesus. You listen to him as this dog listened to his owner. You listen to him, and if you listen to him, it might cost you your life. Are you willing this morning to die for the Lord Jesus? Now, I don't necessarily mean that you would go out and lose your life, but are you willing to die to this world and live for the Lord Jesus? Are you willing to listen to this great prophet? That's what you do with him. And lastly, we see as he comes as a priest. We see this in verses 45 through 48. And again, just like he was a promised king, just like he was a promised prophet, he's a promised priest. We see this in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 12. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes he was healed. Therefore I would divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Transgressors. A priest of the Old Testament is one that stood in between the people of God, that made intercession for them, that made sacrifices for their sins. And Jesus is a priest. He comes as the great high priest, as Hebrews tells us. And he comes, first of all, cleansing the temple. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple of where, where God's people go to worship, where God's people go to commune with God himself, has been overrun by, by commercialism. People are selling things. People are bringing in things that don't deserve, that they don't deserve. They're using the temple of God, this holy place, as a place uh, of commerce. And Jesus comes in and purges uh, the temple of all those who sell there all those who are defiling the temple. He comes acting like a priest and cleansing the, the temple. And he does it with great force. The word there for drive out is ekbalo in the Greek. It means to eject with great force. Jesus' passion, he's zealous over the temple because that's where the people go to meet with God, to go to commune with God. That's where he dwells. And they go to be right with God there. And Jesus is frustrated so much so that he enters into this temple area and drives out all that are defiling his place. He's acting as a priest cleansing the temple. Secondly, he comes cleansing his people. Verse 47, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people we're seeking to destroy him. When I read that, pat, that verse, I was struck because don't you think Jesus knew that if he kept teaching the good news that people would seek to destroy him? Don't you think he knew by teaching the good news that he would, be give, he would have to give up his life for it? And yet he continues to do it. Carrying on into verse 20. He stays in the temple teaching the gospel, says Luke in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus knows that if he continues to preach the gospel, the good news of a God that loves his people and longs to redeem them, it's going to cost him his life. He's going to have to intercede on behalf of his people. And yet he does it willingly. He does it as a priest. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his people, the Lord Jesus is willing to be destroyed. Willing to be broken. Willing to give of his blood for atonement, for the atonement of his people's sins. Jesus comes to cleanse his people. What do you do with a priest like that? Like that? Well, I would suggest to you this morning that you rest. You rest in the Lord Jesus. 
I always hated Saturday mornings at my parents' house, especially when I was a teenager, because Saturday mornings meant I had to wake up early and I had to clean the house. If it wasn't cleaning the house, I had to mow the lawn. If it wasn't mowing the lawn, I had to rake the leaves. There was always something that my parents had me, to, had me doing on Saturday morning. And they didn't let me sleep in. It was always Saturday morning was cleaning day, and you had to clean, Parker. Thank goodness I had three other brothers so we could do it together. But to wake up on Saturday morning and to uh, go out and to, say, mow the lawn was a frustrating experience because I wanted to stay in and I wanted to sleep. I had been out partying with my buddies the night before, doing something ridiculous, I'm sure. And I wanted to sleep in. For the house to be clean, for the yard to be clean, cost me something. It cost me rest. For the Lord Jesus to cleanse His people cost Him something. It cost him his life. He gave of his life that you might be cleansed and that you might have rest in the Lord Jesus. It's sad that we have to say this in a sanctuary full of people that believe in the Lord Jesus. But I'm begging you this morning, would you rest Would you quiet your hearts? Would you get rid of the anxiety and the stress in your life and know that you're watched over by a great king that loves his people and that everything is going to be okay? It's all going to be okay. Because you have a great redeeming king. You have a great redeeming prophet And you have a great redeeming priest that has come as the Messiah, as the Christ, on behalf of his people. Now the passage won't let me stop there. Because the Lord Jesus comes as a prophet, as a priest and a king. But he comes bringing his people salvation. You might ask, where do we see that? Well, we see it in verse 42 In verse 38, the people are crying out about the Lord Jesus coming into the city and they say, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And then verse 42 saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. When Luke, the gospel writer, uses the word peace, he always uses it with respect to salvation. Not internal peace, but peace with God. Jesus enters into this city as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king, fulfilling the Old Testament, fulfilling the one that that had been proclaimed from the very beginning that is to come and to redeem his people. And he comes bringing salvation to them. Luke, Luke, uh, I mean, sorry, Acts chapter 10, verse 36 says this. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Luke uses this word, Irene, for peace. Peace with God. That you no longer 
are looked down upon as enemies, as ones that are deserving of his wrath. But he looks at you as children, as beloved people that he is willing to give his life for. Our Messiah has come to bring us peace with God. Would you know that this morning? Would you know that you are right with God in the Lord Jesus? And you can have rest because of it. Let's pray. Father, how true it is that you have redeemed us, that you have made us right before you. Father, we thank you that you didn't allow us to screw up your story. Even Adam and Eve tried their best. And yet, Father, you said they will not destroy or inhibit your story because you promised of a Messiah, a one to come that will make all things right. And he will give us peace with you. We thank you for this Palm Sunday. We thank you for what it pictures for us is our great king riding into the city. And he rides into the city to give of his life and to die. Will we know that message, the great gospel this morning? And would we, tra- and would we be transformed people? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word and the way it teaches us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.